I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, listeners. Have you ever wanted to know what links Henry Purcell and barbecued penguin meat Or how a fantasy cast for a minimalism movie might look? Well, they've got just the thing for you on the Classical Music Pod. Hosts Sam and Tim guide you through the mad, bad world of classical music. They've interviewed stars from Sheku Kenna Mason to Nicola Benedetti, tackled chewy subjects such as musical decolonization and the Ukrainian identity, and peeked under the bonnet of works both in and outside the canon. It's all topped off with a healthy sprinkling of cutaway humor and homemade jingles. Don't miss their latest season, available fortnightly from all good podcast providers. American folk musician Rhiannon Giddens is a two-time Grammy Award winner, MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, and the artistic director of the Silk Road Ensemble. She's a musical polymath, best known as a singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist, but Rhiannon feels most joyous on stage with nothing else but her voice, singing arias. The purest sense of enjoyment that I have is when I'm singing opera. It's not when I'm playing fiddle. It's not when I'm singing songs that I've written. When you're just talking about pure, like, I'm just loving being up here, it was electric for me. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krauss, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. I just think you're an unbelievable musician, and I'm going to give you a pretty weird compliment, so just bear with me. (laughs) When I first heard you perform... I got this familiar feeling that I usually get around food. Like I could be eating something my grandma cooked or at a hole-in-the-wall restaurant or one of a great chef. And it's this feeling of being given something authentic by someone who really knows their stuff and loves sharing it with people. And your music does that for me. I like that. That's the kind of... That's the kind of thing I like to hear, you know? That's all I would ever want is to evoke some sort of feeling for someone. When you play for people on this level and you make that exchange, 
What are you getting out of it? I mean, it's a good question. It depends on how much I'm channeling. There's some times when I'm just channeling stuff and I really, I'm, I'm actually a bit put out when there's, when there's applause or when people say, oh, that was great. I'm just like, yeah, that's not why, (laughs) that's not why I did it, (laughs) you know? And it's, uh, it's, it's not that I'm like mad at people for applauding. It's just, I'm just in a different space and I'm, I'm there just to channel, to translate to whatever you want to call it. And then there's some times when I'm just kind of, you know, I know I'm hitting it all the years I've put into singing and performing and or playing or whatever. And I know it's just kind of going really well and everybody's feeling it. And then you just get a good buzz off of it. It does depend on where I'm at in my head. When you say that you're channeling, that moment for an artist where you're lost, you're not there anymore, and you are bringing something from the past into the present for people in that moment, does that happen often for you or is it or is it elusive and something that you chase that feeling i never chase it it comes when it wants to come and i can usually feel it right off the bat it's like the hairs kind of go up the back of my neck and i just get into this space and it could happen in a kitchen you know with people sitting around a table it could happen in carnegie hall it could happen you know in a field somewhere it just really depends and I welcome it when it comes because it just always reminds me of why I do this. And I feel like if I reached like one person with that story, then it was worth everything. I'm really grateful for it. I don't know how people do this career, this crazy freaking (laughs) industry (laughs) is such a, it's such a mind eating industry. It's so bad for mental health. And I, the only thing that kind of keeps me going are those those moments, you know, the grounding of of the central kind of mission to my work. And in addition to your voice, I'm just blown away by your instrumental playing. But you didn't start playing the banjo or the fiddle until your mid-20s. And it sounds like you've been playing your whole life. So the learning curve must have been pretty steep for you. How quickly did you take to these instruments? I mean, you're being so nice. I don't really consider myself a great instrumentalist. I um I know what I I know what I can do when I stick to it. I guess that's that's what I do. You know, I always like to joke. I play, you know, I might play four notes, but I play the hell out of those four notes, you know. It's like I know what keys I can play in. I know I've, I'm always in first position. I'm, you know, don't ruin this for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it, it but that's what it is. I'm not going to try to play fancy classical music when I can't play it. I have a good tone because I had classical training as a vocalist. I wanted I wanted to be a good player. I'm always really open about learning instruments later because I feel like it's important for people to not feel like they can't just pick up something if they want. It's just you have to manage your expectations. It's like, yeah, I spent a lot of time practicing. I spent a lot of time sounding like crap. <laughs> you know, as, as we all do when we begin, but like usually if you're an instrumentalist you begin when you're young and kids don't care so much that they sound like crap you know what i mean but when you're an adult and you're good at something and you all of a sudden are busted back down to private when you've started over on, on another instrument you're like oh geez and it kind of it's a great thing for us to suck and to realize this is how it all starts it all starts with not knowing what i'm doing and i just have to be open and i also i mean i had a an affinity for stringed instruments, I think. You know, I picked up the fiddle and I could make a tune on it pretty immediately. Like, it 
clearly I have, I see it on my daughter. You know, she picks, she's just started cello and she's already like playing full pieces. And she just has this idea where the fingers go, but it doesn't mean that she sounds great. <laughs> and so it's interesting watching her at 13 and thinking about myself at 23, 24, 25. And I just threw myself into, I made it, I was like, I did really hard stuff way before I like should have been. But what it did is it just made me not overthink it. The instruments that you play are really hard. Like there's no keys on a piano to play. And even the banjo that you play is fretless. So it doesn't have any guide to where your fingers go like a guitar would. So you have to play by feel and intuition. It must have been difficult at first. Do you remember that moment when the coordination finally set in and your fingers just knew where to go on the instruments? <laughs> I'm still waiting for that. No. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. It, I do remember for both instruments, for the fiddle and the banjo, because I started on a fretted banjo, a modern banjo. Switching to fretless was challenging because it's a it was a larger hand reach, you know, it was a longer scale. And I still am not particularly great at playing chords, you know, and I just, I, you know, I know if I practice for two, three, four hours a day, I would get really good at playing chords, but that's just not what I have time to do. So again, you choose what are the things that you want to get good at. And I think being a, being a fiddler helped make that transition to the minstrel banjo and coming to these instruments older was actually a benefit. Like I just switched to viola. Now I play viola. Seriously? Um, yeah. And I think starting later, I just don't box myself in. I'm just like, no, I'm just going to stretch my fingers out and I just play the things that I know I can play. I think that more than any kind of particular genius that I might have for instruments, it's more that I, I'm just not afraid. Now, I have my limits. Like, I, I want to I play cello. It's, not, it's never going to happen. I've gone as low as I can go, and I'm happy with that. I don't know. If I were a betting man, I'd say probably in a couple of years, I will see you play the cello no. on something. <laughs> no, I'm leaving that to my daughter. I'm like, no, you do it. <laughs> you know, when I meet people outside of the music world, they say to me, like, nice to meet you. You play the trumpet. What other instruments do you play? And when I tell them I just play the trumpet, they give me a look like, you went to Juilliard for six years and you only learned one instrument? <laughs> And, Who are these people? But with musicians like you around, they have a point. I did, you know, my, my partner and I talk about this a lot, my partner Francesco, because he is a freaking genius, that guy. I mean, like the, a, a piano player that plays hand percussion, plus the all the guitar instruments and the accordion. And, you know, he really is. He's a genius. And, but he used to struggle with this. Maybe I should just play piano. Maybe I should just focus on one instrument and go back and forth. But he figured out that he has a feel that he then brings to the different instruments. You're like a jack of all trades or master of one, to change that that proverb. You know, it's like you either are like yourself or like somebody like Chris Thiele, who plays everything but on one instrument. Whereas we are spread and we need like 15 <laughs> to cover everything. So it's kind of a pain in the butt to travel. But... <laughs> It, we are the same person on each instrument. Right. I think either approach is totally fine. You just have to commit and be okay with that. And it's like every time I play stringed instruments and there's a classical person in the audience, I always automatically start to suck because I'm just so freaked out. <laughs> I'm like every time I'm slightly flat or sharp, I'm like, oh, God, they heard that. They heard that. They heard that. You know, I'm going to go ahead and say it's much more intimidating to play for people like you. <laughs> we can both be intimidated. It's fine. Yeah, okay. We'll do that. 
Another thing that amazes me about your playing is that before you played any instruments, you were singing. In fact, you went to school for it. You went to Oberlin to be an opera singer, and you have a degree in it. Did you sing from an early age, and what drew you to opera in the first place? I was always singing, but I didn't know opera at all. I had a little bit of connections to classical music, like a couple of CDs that my mom would play, you know. I mean, I went to science and math high school, boarding school, like nerd school, like straight up, you know. We were the unicorns. That's our mascot. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. Seek and tangent, cosine, sine, three, four, one, four, one, five, nine, physics, bio, polymer, chem, give them hell, go SNM. Yeah. Science, school of science and math in North Carolina. Wow. And then I went to a choral camp for the summer of my rising senior year. And that's where I fell in love with musical theater people and music people and, you know, folks who wanted to do it for a, for a living. And then I went to that camp and I was like, ooh, forget science and math. I was tired of it anyway. I, I want to sing. And I literally was like, okay, musical theater, they talk on stage and I hate talking on stage, which is ironic because now I give speeches. And I was like, opera, they sing all the time. They don't have to speak. That was literally my decision. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study opera. You know, you surprised me again, because for most people, speaking is the easy part and singing is the thing that would scare you. But for you, it's the opposite. Yes. That's it. And, and I knew even then I was like, the idea of singing the whole show was really exciting to me. And I didn't know Jack diddly squat about opera. I didn't know what it was going to take. I really did not know. And I went to Oberlin because they were an opera school and... I saw my first opera there at school. Like I hadn't ever seen one. Time out. So you heard your first opera at the school that you had gone to to study opera, not before that? Live, yeah. I saw one on TV. <laughs> you just arrive in these situations and figure it out. Yeah. I guess as my modus operandi is what I've done my whole life. I just find something that really excites me and I just throw myself into it. Like literally heart, body, and soul, which is what I did. I got to Oberlin and I was like front row of all my classes. I was like, oh my God, all I have to do is take music, no math, no science, no, what? I was just, and, but then I also couldn't read music, you know, and I didn't know how to access, I didn't know how to use the library yet. And like, I, you know, very clearly remember like going back to my teacher's room and like crying because she'd given me all this music to learn and I couldn't, I didn't know how to learn it. And so she re she recorded the, the vocal parts for me on a tape so that I could go off and learn them by ear. It was like insane. I'm really glad I didn't know how hard it was going to be when I, <laughs> when I went, I would have never gone. But I just did. I when didn't you know. say you couldn't read music, you mean you weren't very good and you weren't adept at it or you could not read music? Look at the score. That's a every good boy. Does, OK, that's a D. On the piano, that's C, D, okay, that, ding. All right, so face, that's an E. I mean, literally, oh. that's where I was at freshman year at Oberlin. Like, I, it was the only, I got A's in everything except for theory. My ear got me into Oberlin. My ear's always been really good. So it's my saving grace. You know, I learned everything by ear. What about the operatic training itself? Just the training of the voice can be really intense. And then you have all the things associated with that, like the drama of it. You have to learn about the composers, the librettos. You have to speak the different language that the operas are composed in, or at least you have to sound like you do. Did you enjoy the intensity of all that training? Loved it. Yeah, it was a lot of work, but I loved it. I actually miss it a lot because there's something that's really pure 
about standing on stage with just your voice. To be honest with you, the purest sense of enjoyment that I have is when I'm singing opera. It's not when I'm playing fiddle. It's not when I'm singing songs that I've written. It's not even that mission-based work is something else. It's a different thing. But when you just talk about pure, like, I'm just loving being up here, like, it was electric for me. Well, it turns out that that was really just the beginning of your path because at the end of your training there at Oberlin, you decided not to pursue opera. That must have been a pretty difficult decision to make because you had invested in yourself and invested in the education and the training. What were the factors that went into making that decision? I loved opera, but I didn't like the world. I loved the act of singing. I loved school. I loved learning, history, all of that stuff. But when it came to like auditioning, competitions, I hated auditioning. I'm like, give me the story and give me the character and I'm, I'm yours and I will leave blood on the stage. But auditions, waste of time. I hated them so much. And then I was also like, there's like two kajillion sopranos. What am I doing here? What am I offering opera that, you know, a million other people can't offer better or, you know, as good or better than me? So I was looking for a mission even then. I was looking for a way to feel like I was making a difference. And so I didn't have any plans. I just went home to North Carolina and I started contra dancing, folk dancing, and fell completely in love with it. Pardon my ignorance, but... Oh, it's... Yeah, it's... Contra dancing is, is kind of like square dancing and long lines. Oh. So a lot of the movements are the same. But you'd have a partner and like you dance for 64 beats, you dance with a couple, and then you move on to the next couple. And for the next 64 beats, you do a series of figures with that couple and then so on and so forth. So you end up dancing with everybody in the line. It's a very lovely community-based dance. And there's people of all ages, mostly white. I was usually the raisin in the oatmeal, as we like to say. I was really interested in, in calling the dances. So I started learning how to call. So you have to be really into the structure of the dance because you have to prompt people before the move comes. So it's so like around and around and around you go and you sing your partner and you do do and you do go all high and low and now you meet your corner and now you swing and you swing, swing that pretty little thing and then you turn it, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's kind of like square dancing in that way. Uh, there's, a you know, some similar stuff. And I started like traveling around calling dances, like for money, for tens of dollars. It's not a glamorous life. But I've really like learned a lot about the structure of folk t- of these tunes. You know, they're all old time tunes, Irish tunes, Canadian tunes, all these different kind of fiddle tunes. And you need 64 beats. And that's the way I still think of music. And um, then, I, then I wanted to start playing. And I got into the banjo and the fiddle. And, and even now as a singer, I feel like I'm a better singer because I was a service instrumentalist, being a service musician, you know yourself. When you're in a pit and you're playing so that other folks are lifted up, there's something that's really valuable in that, I think. And it became part of how I look at making music. Hmm. I want to talk about the time that you spent with your mentor, Joe Thompson. He was a fiddle player that was one of the last musicians left on the planet, really, to carry on the tradition of black string band music. And you sought him out to study with him, essentially. What was that experience like and what did he mean to you? He was the last proponent of, a, of, of, the, of the old style black string band music, right? His family is a Thompson family band. It was him and his brother. It was his father and his uncle before him. And, and they played for all the dances in the area. They played the white and the black dances. 
he was playing music from like a generation before. Like for some reason in this area, they were still playing this really old stuff. Bluegrass hadn't really taken hold and he still called bluegrass like the, that new music, <laughs> you know? And uh, yeah, and he was 86. He played with anybody who came. He he really didn't know a stranger. He played with white people. He played with whoever. And then, and then we came along, me and Dom Plemons and Justin Robinson, three young black musicians. And we all were very fortunate. Mm. We were fortunate to get time with him and he was fortunate to get to see people in his community pick up the music before he passed on. So it was just as magical as you think. I mean, yeah, there were times where Thursday nights, the last thing I wanted to do was get in the car and drive an hour and go sit and play these tunes again. But we did it because we knew it was important. And then once we were there, you just kind of sunk into it. And I think back now and I'm just like, geez, Louise, like how lucky we were. Right. Can you even draw a parallel to the education that you got with him to the experience you had at Oberlin studying classical voice? I'd like to say I got two trainings. I got a conservatory training and then I got an apprenticeship. So they're two distinct different trainings. Mm. Like one was very much cerebral and lots of paper and lots of books, you know, but it was really valuable and I still use it every day. And then there was the training of he never said when it was right or wrong. He just either kept playing or he stopped. <laughs> that was it. You know, we'd be like, boys, I believe we're going a little fast. And he'd stop. That was always there, but it was always boys, you know. And uh, Or we're going a little slow. But that's all we got. It was like if we pl- if we were hitting it, he kept playing. And we could we could always tell. So you just like you absorb and you sink into a music in a way um, that's different than when you're having tests and doing all of these things to learn classical music. I feel like they're both equally important in my life, just for completely different reasons. Right. And you're using all facets of your education and your experience to accomplish your musical mission. And I want to talk about that for a minute. The mission is to reclaim the American musical traditions that were appropriated and taken away during slavery. Can you talk about the formation of the mission and exactly how you're aiming to accomplish it through your music? Yeah, it was kind of, it was a mission, I guess, I was led to after Oberlin when I was going, what difference can I make in the world? And then the universe led me to Joe Thompson and it was like, oh, this is really important because the idea of the banjo being a black instrument 20 years ago was still quite shocking. It still is for people, but it's kind of gaining steam, this idea. It was to me. I only heard it associated with Southern white music. I mean, it was in that movie Deliverance. And I never considered the banjo to be anything else until I heard you play it. I don't know if that's saying more for your artistry or my ignorance, but somewhere in between, um, you changed my mind about that instrument and really showed me where it came from. I mean, I feel like that has been a big part of my mission, you know, Um, because it's exactly that. That's what I want. I, I want to open that door as it was opened for me. You know, I didn't know either. And I, and I always couch it like that. I'm not like, you know, tisk tisk, you should know this. Like, I didn't know till I was like 25, 26. And for me, it was like, the banjo is black and followed quickly on the heels of that. It was like, why don't we know that? And whose best interest is it that we don't know that? And that opened up a whole door to 
the narratives that are told about American culture and how damaging they are. And I basically use the banjo as a way to talk about American culture. African-American culture is central to American culture. So American culture is a combination of these things. And a central tenet of that is African-American and white American working class cultural collaboration, right? And then you have all these offshoots. You have Black and Jewish cultural collaboration. You have Black and Irish cultural collaboration. You have Black and Italian. But there's a there's a common factor mm. in all of those, right? Because we're always at the bottom. So every new wave of not white yet people coming in would 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 slam up against us because we're all occupying the same economic space. And then they'd climb out of blackness into whiteness. And the banjo exemplifies that. It crossed over from black to white culture, then became known for, <laughs> you know, known as a white instrument. Like everybody knows the banjo is white, you know, and it's like, how amazing is that, that a hundred years before everybody knew it was black. It was literally an emblem of blackness. I mean, it only takes like a generation, you know, and the advent of the recording industry and movies and TV and, you know, these things are very hard to fight. So I, I do it where I can by bringing my banjo into spaces that people aren't expecting it. I'm a stealth banjoist. They asked me to do the music for the uh, Mark Twain Prize for Bill Murray. And I said, Mark Twain loved the banjo and he loved minstrel music. So let me do a minstrel tune <laughs> in like the other musical guest with Miley Cyrus. <laughs> So I could have gone on there and sung something that would have like shown off my voice, but that's not what I'm here for. Miley Cyrus is here for that. Like, I, I feel like it's a win when it, it's kind of infiltrated and people hear it. And it's like I've always said, once Beyonce picks up the banjo or gets some black banjo player to play on her record, my work is done. What is the opportunity I can make to bring this banjo into the consciousness that will then change somebody's mind like yours and then that somebody could be in a place that can then make a decision that is the right decision when it comes to a movie soundtrack or something that's going to really have a popular appeal you know the thing about this is that in addition to being an expert in the music you're steeped in the history behind the music and then you compose a song to capture that history and use it as a lens to focus in on what's really happening in our society today. That's a lot. You make me, you make me sound very cool. I just know. <laughs> I just, but, I mean, I'm would just, you disagree with that? You I do? Mean, I guess when you put it that way, it's just like, I don't have any choices in the matter. I just open myself up to, you know, like build a house is like a great example of. Build I've heard build a house, but can you talk about it just a little bit? Yeah. So during the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, obviously it's still going on, but during, I was locked down in Ireland because that's where I live. And there was also all the protests going on following the death of George Floyd. And I was really frustrated, locked down in Ireland. And I just, I, I was stuck and I'm watching all of this going on and I'm hearing people talk about this stuff and, and this, the crap they were saying about George Floyd and just I just got, I just kept getting, I just got angry, you know? And I just remember sitting there going, you freaking brought us here to build your shit, you know? And and then you just want us to go away. And I'm just like, and, and the, the, the line, you know, you brought me here to build your house just sort of came. And, and then I write in 
folk idiom. So it just, you know, what does that I mean? usually have, folk, you know, it's like classic country song. you got a chorus, all the verses you want. You can put in as many words. Folk idiom by nature is very terse mm. because you might get two lines per verse because they repeat, you know. It's just easy to remember. It's easy to pass on. Um, so you brought me here to build your house, build your house, build your house. You brought me here to build your house and grow your garden fine. I tried to build my own house and you burned it down. You told me to go. I couldn't go back home. So I found another place to, you know, I, I learned your words. I wrote a song. Then you took my song and, <laughs> you know, but the end of it is, and I will not be moved because that was, that's what I was feeling. I was just like, there's no going back. There's no repatriation back to Africa. We're here. And we all have to figure out how to do this. So I wrote this. And then the next day, Yo-Yo Ma reached out and said, do you want to do something with me for Juneteenth? And I said, well, I just wrote this song. So I sent it to him and he said, let's do it. So we put it together in like three or four days and I recorded it. Oh, I've seen that. I didn't know that was the beginning, the beginning. of the song. I thought that was yeah. just a collaboration after the fact. No, that's what really, I don't know what I would have done with that song. Otherwise, I probably would have just sat on it and maybe put it on a record sometime but it immediately went out yeah you know and you know yo-yo yeah he's got some you know he's got some followers um and it just kind of like i had this moment of okay like you know i'm not there but i felt like people were responding to this song and i yeah i follow i guess i get a feeling and i just i make without thinking about where it's going you know what i mean i make it and then i follow if that makes sense. Yeah, you're an artist. <laughs> now, you've written so many songs that are deeply sad. <laughs> well, true. because they tell the story of an enslaved people, and that's just yeah. sad. sad. Yeah. Um, when you're performing these, is it emotionally <laughs> draining, or is it uplifting to perform these songs and witness people being affected by them? By hell them? no, it's not uplifting. It's draining as hell. It's draining. I've been so close to being completely burnt out. It's just like, I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm 45. I'm tired. I have two children that I've also been raising. I keep saying I'm going to retire because, you know, I see folks who are doing really amazing work and carrying on the mantle and I, it doesn't have to be me, you know, um, the next, but, but still I can't stop because I have the, the new record coming out next year. 11 fun songs, you know, fun. Yeah. Not one song about slavery. But my favorite is the one about incarcerated black men. And it's really, <laughs> it's really depressing. But it's my favorite, <laughs> you know. Um, but I am, I am definitely feeling, I felt the need to take a break. I, I'm working on it. I'm really trying. Because I do feel like there's been so many times where I'm like, I'm literally, I'm, I can't do this anymore. Because yeah. it is, it's a lot, it's a lot. And I'm usually playing for majority white audiences. And I'm not saying that I don't love my audiences, I do, but it's an extra, it's an extra weight. I can't explain it, but it, it just is. And so, yeah, no, it's not uplifting. <laughs> and talk to me about that weight that you just mentioned. You talk about a time going into, was it Sing Sing? That yeah. you played for uh, an incarcerated audience and the weight you felt when you saw that that audience was mostly black and brown men? I mean, it's a different kind of weight. Um, it's interesting because that, that's a heavy, not as heavy as their lives are, you mm. know, but it is heavy to just the reality to see it. But then 
there's this response that's like I've never experienced. It was too much. It was the conflict of those two things was like, I'm still processing that. And that's been years. So that, that works really important to me. And that was the beginning of it. But yeah, that was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. I bet. In pursuit of your mission, you've written books, you've given speeches, but you chose music to be your main vehicle. What is it about music specifically in performance that enables you to communicate and affect people? Yeah, it's interesting. I think music is, it's like, I like to say I'm the performing arts arm of the historian wing. They do the research, <laughs> they do the hard stuff and uh, write the book and then I read the book and then a story out of that book suggests itself for a song. And then I write the song and then I sing the song and I'd say 9.9 .9 out of 10 people in the audience will never pick up that book. But I've created an emotional shortcut for them to connect to that story in that book. And I think that's a powerful tool and I think it works because music is one of the oldest expressions we have. It's something that we can all connect to. And words plus music, I think, is the most powerful of all. Because the head and the heart are both engaged at the same time. I mean, look, this is not taken away from poetry or dance or instrumental music. But for me, it is the way that I feel like I can make the most impact. There is this energy, you can call it medicine, that moves when I connect musically. It's not mine, you know what I mean? None of this is mine. I'm a shepherd of this. I love this quote by Leontine Price. She said, sometimes I just like to sit back and drink a glass of red wine to my voice. <laughs> and I love that so much. It sounds on the surface really arrogant, but actually what it is, is that she's recognizing that voice. That's not her voice, right? And she was given that voice and she's shepherded it and she trained it. And, but the core of that voice is something that comes from something that's greater than we could ever hope to be or create. So I do feel that very strongly, that music is one of those things that when we tap into it in a way that is without ego, it enables us to connect to other people in a way that's really profound. I couldn't imagine a better quote to end this <laughs> on. So thank you so much. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. It's nice to kind of go, you know, I've done some cool things and to talk about it and to go, yeah, I'm a weirdo and I'm proud of that. So it's fun. Thanks for letting me talk about weird stuff. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.